From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense. I'm John Wiener. Later in the show, Eric Foner and Henry Louis Gates will talk about W.E.B. Du Bois, the black historian and activist of the first part of the 20th century, and about his book, Black Reconstruction, 1860 to 1880. But first, why Donald Trump won't be the candidate in 2024. The award-winning investigative reporter David K. Johnston will explain in just a minute. The legends are true. We're overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! I participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. To understand why Trump won't be the Republican candidate, we need first to understand how he ripped off America and enriched his family. That's the subject of a new book by David K. Johnston. It's called The Big Cheat. He won a Pulitzer Prize while working for the New York Times. He's written two earlier books about Donald Trump that were bestsellers. We talked about him here. And he's the co-founder of DC Report, a nonprofit news organization online at dcreport.org. He also teaches at the Syracuse University Law School. David K. Johnston, welcome back. Well, thank you, John, for having me again. After Trump took the oath of office, January 20th, 2017, how long did it take him to start using the presidency to make money for himself? Less than one hour. On the, on the way in the motorcade from the Capitol to the White House with a very sparse audience, he stopped the car and the whole family got out. You remember, may remember Melania in her gorgeous ice blue dress, and they took a two-minute turn on the sidewalk. But what none of the TV networks told their audiences was that it was in front of the Trump Washington Hotel, the old post office. But I assure you that every lobbyist, every foreign envoy, anyone who needed favors from the administration, they got the message. If you want a favor from this administration, you will pay up front. And the best way to pay tribute is to go to his hotel. Of course, we all know about Mar-a-Lago, the Trump Hotel in Palm Beach. We know that Trump had different ways of making money there. Which were the big ones? Well, the big money makers were the Doral, his country club in Miami near the airport, where a number of people moved their conventions, including the uh, annual conference of the predatory lenders, you know, the, the uh, payday and the car title lenders. Mar-a-Lago doesn't have a golf course, but there's two of them nearby. And uh, one of the early chapters in the book is called uh, Charity Doghouse. Donald uses dogs as a way to denigrate people you know, a lying dog, a worthless dog, a whatever dog, particularly women he doesn't like. And uh, while he was in the White House, uh, he ripped off a uh, dog rescue charity for about $2 million that instead of going to rescue dogs, went to help Donald Trump pursue his life. And, and he was absolutely determined, John, to get every single penny from the taxpayers he could he did a photo op at Mar-a-Lago with Shinzo Abe, the prime minister of Japan. 
and there were two water glasses on the table. They were props. $3.15 per glass was paid by the taxpayers. I have the invoice. Ordinary people could become members of the Mar-a-Lago Club, and you could then eat dinner maybe while Trump was eating dinner. It cost, I think, the price went up, of course. I think it was a $200,000 fee to join Mar-a-Lago. If you did that, if you paid $200,000 and ate dinner in the dining room, what did that get you? Would you get FaceTime with the president? Well, before he was president, it only cost 100000 to join. And then as soon as he won the Electoral College, he doubled it to 200000 Uh Yes, many people went there expecting they would run into Donald, and many of them did. Uh, Donald famously discussed national security matters openly in front of people he had no idea who they were. Uh, and there were lots of very sketchy characters with foreign connections who joined, presumably so that they could pick up bits of intelligence there. And after Trump himself, who did you find made the most money off the Trump presidency? Oh, without a doubt, uh, Jared and Ivanka. Uh, Jared Kushner, the president's son-in-law and his family, got 18 sweetheart federally guaranteed loans, interest only for 10 years on apartments they own. These are not loans that you and I, even if we were big, successful real estate developers, could have gotten on the terms they got. They made, according to their disclosure statements, a minimum of $174 million during the White House years, and they could have made more than $640 million. That's because the disclosure forms have uh, ranges, not actual amounts of money. Uh, I think it's highly likely that uh, they were raking money in more than $640 million in four years. Better than that is $5 million a month. Jared uh, had many jobs in the administration. The toughest one was probably bringing peace to the Mideast. Uh, how, how did he do with that one? Uh, not at all. But what he did do was damage our interests with Qatar. Qatar is where America has its most important Middle East base. Uh, the uh, Central Command's operational headquarters is there. And Jared Kushner went to the Qataris and said, hey, I'd like you to loan me $800 million on sweetheart terms. And the Qataris took a look at it and said, you know, we may be rich, but we're not stupid. <laughs> and they turned him away. Right after that, Donald Trump began attacking Qatar. He said, they're financing terrorists. And he took up the cause of the Emiratis and the Saudis. Well, the Saudis finance 60 terrorist organizations, the Qataris two, and at a much lower level. What happened here was that the Saudis, who are very eager to suppress the Qataris, uh, in Saudi Arabia, you know, they beheaded a few years ago 39 men for praying for a better government. Wow. They murdered Jamal Khashoggi, the Washington Post columnist, and have committed many other atrocities. They don't do that in Qatar. They don't behead people in Qatar. People have a lot more liberties in Qatar. It's, it's not a democracy by any means, but it's a much better example of a country. But Donald aligned himself with the worst people. And the reason is, he, A, doesn't know anything about the Middle East. He doesn't know a Sunni from a Shia. If you asked him about Wahhabism, he would go, what? <laughs> uh, and his son-in-law was in there lining his pockets. And right after he got out of the White House, what did Jared do? He started setting up a business, investing money for Saudis and Emiratis. 
So this is Jared. We also need to talk about Ivanka. Ivanka said her specialty uh, during the Trump administration was providing a role model for women who work. Uh, what kind of tips could working women have learned from Ivanka once her father was president and she was one of his top advisors? Uh, I don't think any, to be very blunt about it. There was a, a meeting of finance ministers and world leaders, and Ivanka came along uninvited. And there was a gathering with a Christian Lagarde, the French head of the uh, European Central Bank, and several other women who were prominent in finance. And if you watch the video on YouTube, you can see these other very accomplished women make it clear with their body language, you don't belong here, Ivanka, get out of here. <laughs> she did get a number of very potentially valuable intellectual property rights from the Chinese government. Now, John, if you or I or anyone listening here wanted to go get a patent, a trademark, a service mark from Beijing, we would have to hire the right lawyers in the Communist Party, spend a lot of money, and expect months and years of delays. Ivanka got hers presto just before President Xi went to Mar-a-Lago to meet with Donald Trump. And curiously, one of the intellectual property rights she got was for voting machines. Now, why you would want voting machine property rights in a country that's a communist dictatorship is beyond me, but... But haven't you overlooked the fact that Ivanka created 6 million jobs? Or, or was it 14? Maybe it was 14 million. I'm a little confused on the... Yeah, that's one of the stories in the book that, that Donald at one point credited Ivanka with creating 15 million jobs when it was a tiny fraction of that was the total jobs created in the country. That goes to something I said about Donald, who I've covered and known for 33 years. Mm. He creates his own reality. He just makes it up. And in Donald's mind, if he says something, that's the truth, and you better believe it. And if you don't, well, there's something wrong with you. And he literally kept crediting Ivanka with every job in America and pushing up the numbers. And he has said, you know, she should be president in the future. God save us. Uh, moving right along here, Ivanka and Jared seem to have done a lot better than Don Jr. And, and Eric, hasn't Trump been unfair to his other kids? Well, Don Jr. and Eric are very, very well paid by their father compared to the market. I mean, all three of the Trump kids who distanced themselves from their father after he divorced their mother and denounced him, and particularly in the case of Ivanka, came back to daddy right after they got out of college because nobody in the market would be interested in them and certainly not at the kind of money daddy put in their pocket. And he turned them all into grifters. One of the stories in the book is about the charity to build the wall with Mexico with charity money. Now, we're talking about saying it would cost if you could physically do it, many tens of billions of dollars. And the guy who started this, a disabled vet named Brian Colfage, said, no money will be spent by me. I won't get a penny out of this. Well, pretty soon, Don Jr. and his girlfriend, Kimberly Guilfoyle, are out helping raise money for this thing. Steve Bannon, Trump's former campaign manager, gets into this. And Bannon steals a million dollars from the charity. He gets pardoned by Donald Trump. Colfage buys a yacht and jewelry and $350,000 cash and a lot of other stuff for himself. He and two of his Confederates are still facing trial because Donald wasn't their friend uh, and they didn't therefore get pardoned. But this is the kind of grifter family that Trumps are. They don't 
believe there's any difference between your money and mine, except they don't have your money yet. Of course, the worst thing Trump has done is not enrich himself and his family. The worst thing is his attack on democracy, on on voting in America. But there is a connection between the two. After Trump lost the election of November 2020, he launched a campaign to reverse the results. He called it Stop the Steal, and he asked supporters to contribute to the legal expenses of going to court. So he tried to make money off losing the election, which I think may be a first in American politics. How successful was he at that effort? How much did he raise? How much did he spend on Stop the Steal? Well, he's raised well over $250 million. I suspect when we get the reports at the end of uh, 2021, it will be close to a half a billion. He spent only $9 million on lawyers. And of course, they were famously unsuccessful because they had no evidence. They just had wild, crazy conspiracy theories, uh, some of which have led to uh, acts of violence against people who were just people doing their government jobs, ordinary folks. And Donald is free now to spend that money on himself and his lifestyle. He, he has, in my view, become America's beggar in chief. And he's, he's quite good at it in many ways. I get, um, oh, three to eight emails a day from uh, pitches to give money to Trump. My favorites are the ones from Don Jr. David, last night I spoke with my father. You were the only person in America who supports us who didn't respond to my latest request for help. <laughs> my father is very upset. and He asked me to call you as one of our most generous supporters. <laughs> you know, I mean... People believe this garbage? Yeah, because they are what Trump calls the people he loves, the poorly educated. Let's go back to before Trump was president. You say you've covered him for many decades. Of course, he ran in the primaries in 2015 and 2016 as the candidate who was a genius at business. There are some respects in which he was very good, in a way, at dealing with investors and vendors and employees and and banks that loaned him money, students that enrolled at his university. Tell us about Trump as a businessman before he became president, something you know a lot about. Yeah, I've known Donald since 1988, so a long, long time. Uh, Donald's uh, business is uh, stealing. He hires vendors to do work for him, and then he'll he'll refuse to pay them. Uh, he'll take your work and say, this is crap, and then he'll use it. And if you say, well, you got to pay me, he'll say, sue me. Uh, Donald has cheated investors. He's refused to pay his own workers. Uh, Trump University, of course, was a scam from day one in which uh, they said Donald would personally select the faculty when under oath he didn't have any idea who they were, and they turned out to be fry cooks and bottle washers and people with no business experience. Uh, And of course, ultimately, he had to repay almost all of that money. Well, Trump may have uh, defrauded his investors and stiffed his vendors and uh, employees, but the feds did put him on trial for income tax fraud. I think a lot of people don't know about this. Tell us about it. Well, it was actually not the feds. It was the city of New York and the state of New York. And these were uh, income tax fraud civil trials. In uh, in 1984 was Donald's biggest year by far up to that point. He opened his first casino in Atlantic City. And Trump Tower, the units went on sale just before the beginning of that year. So he had this enormous income that year, just 
nothing like he'd ever had before. And he filed an income tax return that had what's called a Schedule C. That's what I file as an author and freelancer. It's a sole proprietorship. He showed no revenue. He took over $600,000 in deductions, a different amount, by the way, on each return, which is very bizarre. He was audited, and the state and the city of New York said, you owe money. Uh, he wouldn't pay. There was a trial. In one of the trials, his longtime tax lawyer and accountant, Jack Mitnick, was put under oath by the judge, and he was asked, is that your signature on the tax return? And Mitnick looked at the document and said, your honor, that's my signature, but I did not prepare that tax return. The tax return was actually a photocopy, not an original. You, know, you have to sign with an ink pen, your tax return. You can't sign with a pencil, you have to sign with an ink pen. This was a photocopy, and it was what the was officially filed. Well, uh, somebody, presumably Donald, changed the tax return, and with a photocopy machine, put Jack Mitnick's signature on it. And the only reason the judge didn't go after him uh, worse was nobody could find the original, because it was never filed, presumably, and the judge was cautious about this. But we have absolute proof that Donald Trump is a tax cheat. And then along comes the New York Times after I got one year of Donald's tax return. And, and my former newspaper very graciously acknowledged my role in getting them to dig into Donald's taxes. And they established, after getting 18 bankers boxes of tax records from Mary Trump, uh, the former president's niece, that he was a swindler in taxes. The whole family, including his sister, a federal judge, were all serial, calculated, deliberate, knowing tax cheats. This is a crime family. Donald Trump is the third generation head of a four generation crime family that started in the 1880s and is still engaged today in swindling. They don't break legs. They just rob you blind with contracts and refusals to pay. Four months after Trump left office, a state grand jury in Manhattan indicted the Trump Organization for Criminal Tax Fraud Conspiracy, a felony. Tell us about that indictment and where we stand on it right now. Well, Donald Trump's lawyers and spokespeople do not dispute the facts in this case, which is very important. What they say is everybody does it, and it's small potatoes. Uh, Alan Weiselberg, who is the money man at the Trump Organization, the guy who knows where every dollar is and was, received $1.7 million in fringe benefits, like a lease, two leased Mercedes-Benz's, an apartment in New York, although he declared he was not living in New York, but out in Long Island, and uh, various other benefits on which he paid no taxes. Now, is that small potatoes? Uh, at the median income, for workers in the United States in 2020, we just got the data, uh, you would have to work for almost 60 years to get $1.7 million. More than 50 years is probably the easier way to put it. So I don't know, it's a lifetime's income, small potatoes and tax fraud. Uh, Alan Weiselberg was indicted in the hope that he would flip on Donald. There were lots of news reports by reporters that said he could get 15 years in prison. What none of them read was the statute. There's no mandatory prison for any of the charges against him. And a man in his 70s with no prior criminal convictions, even if convicted fully, he's going to get probation or house arrest. So 
uh, Weiselberg thumbed his nose. But the indictment of the Trump organization, that is 100% owned by Donald Trump. That's his alter ego. So uh, there's no question that the Trump organization was actively involved with many people in tax fraud. I don't expect Donald Trump to be indicted personally for tax fraud. And let me explain why, John. If he were tried on a tax charge, his lawyers would say, well, he, he was just puffing. He was just uh, marketing himself, and, and uh, he really doesn't know anything about taxes. So now what? It seems like Trump is going to be the candidate in 2024, and it seems like a lot of people are ready to vote for him. I don't think Donald Trump will be the candidate in 2024 because he's going to be indicted before then, perhaps more than once, and that's going to change the dynamic. When he is indicted by the Manhattan grand jury, I expect it will be for a New York State racketeering charge, Article 460, if you want to look it up, of the New York Penal Code. He's under investigation by Mimi Rocha, the former federal, longtime former federal prosecutor who's now the district attorney in Westchester County, over property tax fraud. He claims his Westchester golf course is worth a million and a half dollars for tax purposes, but on his presidential forms, he said more than 100, more than 50 million. And he said to people, it's worth 100 million. Well, you know, you can go to your assessor and say, wait a minute, my house is worth 10% less than you say. But if you, your disparity is one and a half million to 100 million, I'm sorry, that, that doesn't work. He's under a criminal investigation by the state attorney general in New York, Letitia James, in two different matters by the district attorney, I'm sorry, the attorney general in Washington, D.C., and the district attorney in Fulton County, Georgia, for, for um, election fraud. That doesn't mean he isn't working, and many people around him aren't working, to end your liberties and to turn us into a dictatorship. They are working very hard to do this. So pay attention to would-be usurpers, Ted Cruz, Josh Hawley, and a whole slew of other people who want to be our dictator and that millions and millions of Americans no longer care about democracy and they say so quite openly, they're eager to embrace a dictator. David K. Johnson, his new book is The Big Cheat, How Donald Trump Fleeced America and Enriched Himself and His Family. David, thanks for your many years of work on this topic and thanks for talking with us today. Thank you very much, John. A year after the largest protest movement in American history, the Black Lives Matter protests of 2020, one of the key books of American and African-American history is being published in a definitive new edition, Black Reconstruction by W.E.B. Du Bois, the pioneering work of revisionist scholarship published originally in 1935 and out now from the Library of America, edited by Eric Foner and Henry Louis Gates Jr., who join us now. Henry Louis Gates teaches at Harvard, where he's the Alphonse Fletcher University professor and director of the Hutchins Center for African and African American Research. He's written many books, including Stony the Road, Black Reconstruction, White Supremacy, and the Rise of Jim Crow. And of course, he's widely known as the host of many documentary films for PBS, including a four-hour series on Reconstruction two years ago. He's also, of course, known for his wonderful PBS series, Finding Your Roots. New season starts January 4th. My favorite from this past year was Angelica Houston, where she bursts into tears when she learns that an ancestor of hers freed his slaves in his will. 
we talked about it here. Skip Gates, welcome back. Thanks, John. Eric Foner, of course, taught history at Columbia for a long time. His work on Reconstruction and the Civil War has won the Pulitzer Prize, the Bancroft Prize, and the Lincoln Prize. He's also written for the New York Times op-ed page, the TLS, the LRB, and The Nation, where he's a member of the editorial board. Eric, welcome back. Yeah, nice to see you again, John. Well, let's start with each of you reading a paragraph or two. Skip? Well, if it's okay, I would like to read a passage from a book that occasioned, in part, Du Bois's decision to write Black Reconstruction. And it was from an exceedingly popular account of Reconstruction written by the journalist Claude Bowers. It was called The Tragic Era, and it was published uh, at the end of the Jazz Age, at the end of the Harlem Renaissance, 1929. And it was another history of Reconstruction as a form of quote-unquote Negro rule in which corrupt and morally degenerate African-Americans demonstrated that they were unfit for freedom, much less for governing themselves and, my God, governing over white people. I quote directly from the tragic era. Freedom, it meant idleness and gathering in noisy groups in the streets. Soon they were living like rats in ruined houses in miserable shacks under bridges built with refuse lumber in the shelter of ravines and in caves in the banks of rivers. Freedom meant throwing aside all marital obligations, deserting wives and taking new ones and an indulgence in sexual promiscuity that soon took its toll in the victims of consumption and venereal disease, jubilant and happy the Negro who had his dog and a gun for hunting, a few rags to cover his nakedness, and a dilapidated hobble in which to sleep was in no mood to discuss work, unquote. The book published by Houghton Mifflin was a bestseller and a selection of the Literary Guild. The book went through 12 subsequent hardcover printings. Anna Julia Cooper, the pioneering black feminist, the principal of the famous M Street School in Washington, wrote to Du Bois, urging him to write about Reconstruction in a way that would forcefully respond to Bowers and to Eric's predecessors in the Columbia History Department, the Dunning School. And she said, thou art the man to do it. And Du Bois did it. Claude Bowers, the tragic era. We've never heard from Claude Bowers on our show before. So uh... <laughs> let me make a quick point about Claude Bowers. Now that we've heard some of his views, Claude Bowers, among other things, was appointed ambassador to Spain by Franklin D. Roosevelt. All during the 1930s, he was the American ambassador to Spain. My point is that at that time, completely overt racism, as we heard, did not disqualify you at all from a high position. Indeed, the Democratic Party, people admire Roosevelt greatly, for sometimes for good reason, but uh, on questions of race, uh, that was just not something of interest to him. They didn't think it was racist. The, the general opinion was that this was an accurate account right. of this unfortunate experiment gone mad, allowing Negroes to rule over white people and themselves in the 12 years after the Civil War. And Du Bois, of course, countered this and uh, denounced it in Black Reconstruction, particularly the final chapter, the propaganda of history, in which he took the entire 
history profession and Bowers and many others to task for totally distorting the history of Reconstruction. Let me just read you a few sentences from that chapter. Du Bois writes, I write in a field devastated by passion and belief. Naturally, as a Negro, I cannot do this writing without believing in the essential humanity of Negroes and their ability to be educated, to do the work of the modern world. But as a student of science, I want to be fair, objective, and judicial. But armed and warned with all this, I stand at the end of this writing literally aghast at what American historians have done to this field, aghast at the overt racism and just distortion of facts that the existing literature of Reconstruction represented. And uh, Du Bois wrote Black Reconstruction in order to set the record straight. And Eric, do you want to just say a few words about your own predecessors at Columbia University? Yes, we have a lot to answer for in the Columbia University History Department, the so-called Dunning School, named after my predecessor, William A. Dunning, who taught the Civil War era uh, around the turn of the century, 1900 and more, and John W. Burgess uh, in the Political Science Department. They were the uh, progenitors of what we call the Dunning School. Skip uh, explained a little bit via Bowers about what their views were. Reconstruction was a terrible mistake because of giving some modicum of power to former slaves who were incapable of exercising it intelligently or properly. And the Dunning School dominated historical writing on this period way into the 20th century, into the 1950s. It was still being, those works were still being cited by courts in decisions relating to civil rights and issues like that. It wasn't really until the 60s with the civil rights revolution that a new generation of scholars began dismantling the edifice of the Dunning School. Du Bois had, of course, started that out, but uh, Du Bois's book was not really used in the academic world. It was, a, it was sold pretty well, Black Reconstruction, but it was, uh, it was not considered serious history by the uh, history uh, profession until the 1960s and after. Go back to Birth of a Nation. We tend to think Birth of a Nation was about the Civil War and slavery. It wasn't, it was about Reconstruction. We, America collectively, with very powerful interests in the former Confederacy, but also in the North, um, powerful Northern capitalist interests, as Du Bois pointed out, wanted to erase this 12-year experiment in inter interracial democracy. They couldn't literally do it, but they could certainly do it by taking control of the narrative. Why was that important? We tend to forget that until 1910, 90% of all black people in America lived in the South. South Carolina, Mississippi, and Louisiana were majority black states, John, and Georgia, Alabama, and Florida were almost majority black states. In 1867, because of one of the Reconstruction Acts, in March 1867, black men got the right to vote in 10 of the 11 former Confederate states. So I call the summer of 1867 the first freedom summer. And 80% of the eligible men, eligible black men, who could register to vote, registered to vote. That's amazing, 80%. And the overwhelming percent of them by far were illiterate, of course. And with the urging of their wives and women and through churches and other civic groups, 
They registered great debates in the black community about who to vote for. In 1868, they voted. 500,000 black men cast their votes. We, you know, it's reasonable to assume for Ulysses S. Grant. Now, Grant won overwhelmingly in the Electoral College, but he won the popular vote by just over 300,000 votes. So you could say black men who were formerly enslaved had elected the president of the United States. Even people who were liberal in the North who were against slavery as an institution thought this is too much. And so within 12 years, and this is an oversimplified version that I'm giving, but within 12 years, and, and to quote Du Bois, the Compromise of 1877 created an alliance between white capitalist interests, northern industrialists, and southern planters, ex-slaves, and indeed all workers lost out. Yeah, let me, let me add to what Skip said, that uh, it, in terms of the book, Let's just take that title of the, of the first chapter, as you said, the black worker. He did not say the slave. He said the black worker, because in this book, he's trying without 100 percent success, but he's trying to integrate a racial analysis and a class analysis together. And as Skip said, labor is crucial to uh, his analysis. And indeed, he says, uh, Du Bois says that the tragedy of Reconstruction is that white laborers fail to see their community of interest with the emancipated slaves or the black workers. They, and he used this phrase, which later was picked up by David Rodiger and many others, the wages of whiteness. White privilege, if you want to use a modern term, uh, blinded white workers to the need to ally themselves with the aspirations of blacks. But just starting the book with slavery was itself a radical statement of historical analysis at that time, because the general view of historians was that slavery was really not that important uh, in the coming of the Civil War. You remember the Beardian approach dominated. This was a battle of white agrarians versus white industrialists. And uh, Beard once said, uh, I could write the whole history of the Civil War and never mention the word slavery. But Du Bois starts with slavery to say, no, this is about slavery and its aftermath. And slavery was the fundamental cause of the Civil War. Uh, that is taken for granted by historians today, but it certainly was not in the mid-1930s when Du Bois was writing. So let's take a step back here, and I'd like to ask, starting with you, Skip, how did you first learn about Du Bois' Black Reconstruction? When did you first read it? Oh, in uh, the 1969-1970 academic year at Yale University, when I took my very first course in what we then called Afro-American history, I soaked it up like a sponge. It was taught by a Pulitzer Prize-winning historian, William S. McFeely, a great man whom I admired very, very much. And he had us read um, the propaganda of history, the essay on historiography the, of the racist historical accounts of, of Reconstruction. So we, I learned two things at the same time. One, about Reconstruction, and two, that the political stakes about the interpretation of Reconstruction were extraordinarily high. So, and I also learned, uh, we weren't using the word deconstruction at that time, but I learned that you could read closely and tear an argument apart and understand its ideological underpinnings. So it was a great pedagogical device for um, a sophomore at Yale. And I, um, you know, none of us 19 read 500, 700 pages of Black Reconstruction. I ain't gonna lie about that. <laughs> but 
in the propaganda of history, uh, Du Bois, even then, I think I understood when, if we could read sections of it, they're long, beautiful, poetic riffs on the, the coming of freedom. He called it the coming of the Lord in, in this section. And the, the, the voice of the spirituals, which Du Bois called the sorrow song. So much of this book has let me uh, think about Du Bois in his, as a, an historian. I always think about him as a literary scholar because that's what I am. But even his history is replete with poetry. Even more important than his facts was the fact that he was mounting a poetic defense of African-Americans and their humanities. And he has this great line about his own position in which he says, I write then in a field devastated by passion and belief. Naturally, comma, as a Negro, comma, I cannot do this writing without believing in the essential humanity of Negroes, in their ability to be educated, to do the work of the modern world. So you knew that this was a brief for the humanity and the equality. I'm not talking about the equality before the law. I'm talking about the equality of persons of African descent on the great chain of being in the scale of nature. That was obvious to me, even as a sophomore. And you realize that the stakes were that high for Du Bois. So, Eric, I know that uh, your family included historians of African uh, Americans long before any of us were going to college and your family was involved in civil rights politics around New York City. So I imagine you had heard of W.E.B. Du Bois and Black Reconstruction before you were a sophomore in college. Du Bois was an acquaintance of my family, my, my parents. I, I think the first time I ever laid eyes on Du Bois was when I was quite young and we used to frequent one of these left-wing summer uh, resorts up in the Catskill Mountains. And one day this short, very well-dressed elderly man walked into the dining room, which was this big thing, and everybody got up and applauded. These were all <laughs> old leftists of one kind or another. And of course, I didn't know what, what, were they, what was this about. And my mother just said, well, this is, doc, this is Dr. Du Bois. So I didn't know, you know, I was maybe five or six years old. I didn't know what Dr. Du Bois meant. But fast forward to 1960, when I'm a freshman in college at Columbia and my brother and I are picketing Woolworths in New York in sympathy with the sit-in movement at Woolworth stores uh, in the South, the spring of 1960. And uh, my family visited Du Bois and his wife, Shirley Graham, uh, in Brooklyn at their house. And uh, we told him we'd been out picketing Woolworths and Du Bois said, now, here he's about in his early 90s, I believe. He said, I would like to pick it also, but surely won't let me. <laughs> he thinks he's too old to go out picketing Bullworth stores. Um, so that was the first time I met Du Bois. But it, in terms of reading the book, that came when I was a student a little later at Columbia. And the, a great teacher, James Shenton, I was in his seminar on uh, the Civil War Reconstruction era. And he assigned Du Bois and he said, you've got to read the whole 700 pages. <laughs> um, I'm not sure we read every single one, but he told us to do that. And uh, the, he's the chairman of the history department 
according to Shenton, told him he was not supposed to assign Du Bois because it was not real history. <laughs> uh, he uh, didn't care about that, and he assigned it, and we discussed it. So that's when I first came upon Black Reconstruction, and I got to know it very, very well later when I was working on my own uh, history of Reconstruction. Uh, John, if I may, one of the great honors of my life, uh, knowing about Eric's relationship to uh, the relationship of Eric's family to Du Bois, and then you know Eric had actually seen him. Du Bois died when I was twelve. Okay, so I never, I never saw him. But I revered Du Bois. The proudest thing in my collect, I'm a collector of Af- Africana. I have the first edition of Souls of Black Folk in a dust jacket, <laughs> which I just got as a gift from some friends for my 70th birthday. But when we had the first screening of a reconstruction series, I gave in front of hundreds of people, I gave Eric a gift. And, you know, Eric's so modest. And I said, unwrap it. You know, we're sitting on the stage with Kimberly Crenshaw and uh, I guess David Blake. And I said, unwrap it. And he unwrapped it. And what was it, Eric? Tell John what it was. Well, it was a copy of Black Reconstruction, first edition, inscribed by Du Bois to his daughter. Isn't that oh. correct? Oh, uh, that's correct. Wow. Yeah. That's- Yolanda. So that was a very, uh, I, I, I cherished that uh, gift. I appreciated it then. And I appreciate now having it on my uh, shelf in my living room. <laughs> so, Skip, you first read this in 1969, which was kind of a peak year of black militants. You're republishing it now. I first read one chapter. <laughs> okay, okay. Your introduction came in a peak year of black militants of 1969. You've edited a new edition of it in the world of Black Lives Matter. What's it like to read it now in the context of Black Lives Matter? You know, I've taught the literature from the slavery and the literature of the 19th century since I was 26 years old. I've been teaching in the college classroom since that time, and I'm 71, so you can do the math. But it was only making this documentary that I really understood the rise of white supremacy and its history in um, the United States. And remember, of the 200,000 black men who fought in the Civil War, probably 145, 150,000 were not free in 1860. They were people who became free because of the Emancipation Proclamation. They were able to get behind behind Union lines, then joined the United States Army and served. They became Lincoln's Black warriors. So um, the Emancipation Proclamation not only freed um, the slaves, it empowered Black men to shoot and kill white men which was a quite a radical thing. Yes. This moment, it's like, it's almost as if, and Du Bois suggests this, that after the Civil War, after the elections of 1868, both white liberals in the North and the, the white, you know, former Confederates woke up and said, what the hell did we do? What did we do? And this is the result. And they were able, after 750,000 human beings died during the Civil War. They were able to put aside their differences, uh, uh, you know, overlook treason, overlook secession, put aside all those differences and decide they had more in common with each other than they did with Black people. That is the history of race in America. That's what you learn from studying Reconstruction. So my last question, given that people today can read 
Eric Foner's book on Reconstruction, given that we can watch the Henry Louis Gates four-hour series on Reconstruction on PBS anytime you want, uh, do you think people can still get something out of reading this 1935 book? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, first of all, as Skip said, Du Bois is a poet as well as a historian and scholar, and it's just much of the book is just beautiful to read. I think what's really interesting is that the more you know about this period, the more you come to appreciate Black Reconstruction, how many current ideas he anticipated, starting with slavery as the fundamental cause of the Civil War and starting with Black people as key historical agents of change in that, in that era. Frequently, I've had the uh, experience of dipping into uh, Black Reconstruction and say, wait a minute, I, th I thought of that. I thought I was original when I said that. But actually, Du Bois anticipated me by 50 years or something like that, you know. So, uh, yes, there's plenty of modern scholarship. Some of it has uh, challenged or criticized some of Du Bois's uh, statements. But um, it's definitely well worth reading, especially in the condition that our country is uh, in today. He had to go back and write the record about the moment black rights had been snatched away. Black people had more rights in 1875 because of the Civil Rights Act for eight years until the Supreme Court declared it unconstitutional than they would have again till the mid-1960s. <laughs> it was such a crucial moment in the history of race in America. It is what could be, what could have been if the Supreme Court had not uh, denuded the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, the Reconstruction Acts. What could have been if black suffrage had been protected in the South? What could have been if there had been land redistribution? What could have been? It would have been a new world of race situated right here in the post-Civil War United States of America. But people decided it was not to be. Black Reconstruction, 1860 to 1880 by W.E.B. Du Bois has just been published by the Library of America in a new edition, edited by Eric Foner and Henry Louis Gates. Guys, thanks so much for talking with us today. Thank you. Great to talk to you, John. Start Making Sense, a podcast from The Nation magazine, is co-produced by the L.A. Review of Books and recorded in Los Angeles at our Blythe Avenue studios. Our audio engineer is William Broughton. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is The Nation's engagement editor. D.D. Guttenplan is editor of The Nation. Katrina Vandenhuvel is publisher and editorial director of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. You can find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com. You can subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts, at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or Pocket Casts. I'm John Wiener. Tune in to Start Making Sense next week for more political talk without the boring parts. Music